In the last couple of morning's reflections, I've made reference to the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta, that is, being mindful internally, externally, in both. This just indicates the comprehensive nature of mindfulness. And then to be mindful, there is a body, to the extent necessary for clear knowledge and continuous mindfulness. These two lines are just a very small part of the Satipatthana Sutta, and which, as most of you probably know, is quite a remarkable discourse. In just a few pages, the Buddha leads us from awareness of the breath, to sensations in the body, to the elements, to all the activities that we're engaged in the day, to mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of all the dhammas, the categories of experience, the hindrances, the factors of awakening, it goes on and on. And it's quite amazing, this comprehensive path, which the Buddha declared right at the beginning of the discourse, this is the direct path to liberation, to awakening. So the practice that you're all engaged in is really quite profound. I thought tonight it would be helpful as you're engaging in this path of practice to clarify the meaning of some commonly used terms which in English are often confused. You know, Pali is a very precise language with respect to the Dhamma. The words have very specific and well-defined meanings. But when they're translated into English, some of the terms in English have meanings that overlap with one another. And so it can cause misunderstandings about how to practice. The terms I'd like to clarify tonight are very basic ones. The first is consciousness, it's the knowing faculty. The second is perception. The third is mindfulness, and the fourth is wisdom. And they each have very different meanings, which have implications for the understanding of our own minds. So the first of these terms, consciousness, in Pali it's vijnana. This is just the ordinary process of knowing that's going on all throughout the day. It's the process of knowing the different six sense objects. So the knowing of sight, of sound, of smell, of taste, of different sensations in the body, and of mind objects. That which knows these different six sense objects is called consciousness. And this process is going on in all beings. It's going on in animals as well as humans in babies and children, as well as adults. <coughs> and to get an idea, to really get an understanding of what consciousness refers to, sometimes <coughs> it's interesting just to watch a pet or an animal or a young child, even a baby, because it's obvious they are knowing the different sense experiences. There is a knowing there. There's a knowing of sight and a knowing of sound. And we can see that. And that gives us some sense of just what this bare 
this bare knowing is about, bare knowing of sense impression. Consciousness or knowing and its object are a pairwise progression arising together throughout our lives. And it's this pairwise progression of knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, which is really what we call self. When we're not attending carefully to the process, we just take it as an aggregate and, oh, this is who I am. When we look more carefully, though, we see that the process is actually arising and passing moment after moment. Something that becomes increasingly obvious as we deepen our practice is that consciousness, the knowing, and its object are always arising simultaneously. They're arising and passing away together. So, for example, you know, in hearing, the knowing of the sound and the sound itself as the physical elements, they're arising exactly simultaneously. It's not that the knowing is waiting there to receive the sound, and it's not lagging, picking it up afterwards. Just in the very moment of the sound arising, the sound is known. What's interesting about this, at least to me, is that even though we cannot separate the knowing from its object, they're arising simultaneously and they're inseparable, but we can distinguish those two processes. They're quite different. And just as an example, you know, if you look at this, you can see color in form, color in shape. You can't separate the color from the shape. The color is in a shape, and the shape has color. So they're inseparable, but they're quite distinguishable. They're two different aspects. In just the same way, knowing and its object arising together inseparably, but we can distinguish. So often it's the object which is most predominant, but we can also become aware of the knowing itself. Okay, so consciousness, just the bare knowing of these six sense objects, the sixth sense being the mind and mind objects. The second term to understand is perception. And this is the quality of recognition. So we hear a sound and we recognize it as bell. We see a sight, we recognize it as man or woman or tree or house. Consciousness simply knows the sense impression. It's perception which recognizes what it is. It distinguishes it from all the other objects. It recognizes what it is. It gives it a name, a concept. It stores the name in in memory. So when we have the same sense experience again in the future, that concept comes to mind. Like consciousness, 
perception, this, this factor of recognition of what's arising, is happening in every moment. It's called the common factor. So knowing and perception, this is just our ordinary way of being in the world. This is, this is how everybody navigates the world, through knowing sense impressions and recognizing what those sense impressions are. There's nothing special about this. But the Buddha gave emphasis to this factor of perception, of recognition. And he singled it out as being particularly important in that he listed perception as one of the five aggregates. You know, so of all the different mental qualities, he singled out feeling and perception because they play a very important role in our conditioning. The way we perceive things conditions how we relate to and how we react to them. So how we perceive things, which is conditioned by our background, by our karma, by what kind of being we are, all that conditions our perceptions. So just as an example of this, you know, sometimes you walk along the road and you might see a dead animal on the road, you know, that was run over. So there can be a lot of different reactions to that based on our perception. We might be perceiving it just as a very unpleasant mess. You know, here's this body that's all squashed and, you know, we might feel a revulsion. Or maybe we're conditioned particularly to feel compassion for, you know, the animal was run over. A vulture will see that and, oh, this is a delicious meal. It's the same, it's the same dead animal on the road, perceived in very different ways. And then those perceptions are acted on in very different ways. So there are two important things to know about perception, this quality of recognition. One is our perceptions are very much relative based on our conditioning. We perceive things because we're looking at things from a particular perspective. And some other person or some other being may be having the same experience from another perspective and perceiving things quite differently. When we realize that our perceptions are relative, it loosens a bit the grip of this strong attachment we have to our own viewpoints. Because we realize we don't have some direct avenue to the absolute truth of things. We're perceiving things according to our own conditioning, as is everyone else. So when we can really understand this, we can hold our various views, and hopefully they're prompted by wisdom rather than other things, but we can hold our views with a little more lightness. And... There's a, a line from the this, this 16th century Zen master Bankai 
which I really love because it just it encapsulates this understanding when he said don't side with yourself you know and how many of our interactions with other people we tend to side with ourselves we give we give precedence to our own viewpoint and again it's not to say that we shouldn't have viewpoints it's just to realize it's relative it's relative depending on how we're perceiving things and others will be perceiving things differently so that's the first thing to know about perception it's relative the second thing to know about perception which has enormous consequences for our lives is that our perceptions are often mistaken that we're often misperceiving what's in front of us and the buddha called this hallucinations of perception and he highlighted a few of these hallucinations that have tremendous impact in our lives he said very often we take what is impermanent to be permanent we ascribe a lastingness to things that they don't have we take what is ultimately unsatisfying or unreliable because of their changing nature we take them to be satisfying to be reliable it's as if we go to refuge in impermanent things in unsatisfying things this is a hallucination of perception and we take what is non-self to be self okay so these are the these are the kind of big hallucinations of perception that can take place in next week's talk i want to explore a little bit more the relationship of some of these hallucinations of perception to each other but for now it's just to understand that perception the term means recognition okay so this consciousness which is the bare sense impression this perception which recognizes and puts a concept on what that sense impression is the third term to understand is mindfulness <coughs> we use that word a lot around here sati the pali so this is the observing power of the mind and it's described as that quality of mind that comes face to face with the experience comes face to face with the object so the mind is not forgetting what's in front of it it's not forgetting it's not drifting off the present moment experience and as i mentioned although we usually mindful of sense objects that sight and sound smell taste sensation thoughts because they're the more obvious we can also be mindful of consciousness itself we can turn the mindfulness back towards the knowing so we can become mindful of the knowing process and of the nature of consciousness so there's the ordinary knowing and recognition of different objects 
which is just how we're usually going through the day. And when we're doing this, we're simply playing out the patterns of our conditioning without mindfulness. We're just playing out the conditioning of knowing and perception. And I call this way of being black lab consciousness. Do you know the dog's black black labrador retrievers? I'm just using them as an example because they're, they're incredibly active and funny and they are literally being led around by their nose. You know, and you just, they're going here and there and they're very playful. Well, there's knowing there. Consciousness is there. Perception is there. They're recognizing, you know, the sights and they're certainly recognizing all the different smells. But it doesn't look like they're being very mindful. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> so mindfulness is something other than simply knowing and perception. Mindfulness is a certain observing power in the mind where we become mindful that we're knowing. It's a moment of going meta, not M-E-T-A. It's going meta to the experience. So we're not simply lost and carried away in the flow of experience, we are mindful that we are aware. Right? And so it's a quite different experience than black lab consciousness. There's a Native American writer, her name is Louise Erdrich. And I just came across this, this one quote of her in, a, in an article by her. She said, those powerful moments of true knowledge, which we paper over with daily life, but every so often something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. We are aware. And I just like that image, you know, we're, we're kind of papering over moments of true knowledge because we're so caught up in the momentum of our lives. But every so often, and hopefully more often here, something shatters like ice and we fall into the river of our own existence. Like we become aware of the process that's going on. So that's a powerful moment. That's a moment of mindfulness. So just as an ordinary example of how this works, I think this is probably an experience we've all had. Now just imagine yourselves in the movies. You know, and it's a good movie, and you're totally caught up in the story and having all kinds of emotions based on the story, feeling happy or sad or excited or afraid, whatever. The, the movie is uh, leading us to feel. And then occasionally something, something just shifts, and for a moment maybe we remember we're in the movies, that nothing that's happening on the screen is really happening. You know, and just in that moment, or sometimes it's in the moment of coming out at the end of a theater, at the end of the movie. You know, when you step out of the theater and you know that moment, it's like the world expands again. The mind gets a little bigger because we're not lost in the story in that moment. When we're not mindful, when we're not aware of what's happening, 
when there's not a careful observing power in the mind, then we're not tuning in to the underlying realities of experience. We're just coasting along on the conceptual level in the surface. We're lost in the movie and don't realize it's just pixels of light on the screen. That, that's all that's really happening. Well, if that's the case with a movie, think of the difference in terms of understanding our own lives. Now, as we practice, it leads us to a very important insight, and I think one which, as yogis, we often don't appreciate. And that is the insight into how often our minds become lost in the movies of our minds. But as yogis, we all know that. Have you not had that insight of how often the mind gets lost? It gets lost a lot in the course of a day. You know, we get lost in the various sense worlds of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and all the mind objects, you know, thoughts and images and memories and plans and judgments and comments, all the emotions. You know, we feel happy, we feel sad, we feel angry, we feel depressed, we feel interested, we feel bored. It's like this ongoing river of experience. And without mindfulness, we simply get caught up and lost in this world. So the Buddha spoke very powerfully of this. And I love kind of the image he used. He said forms, you know, material forms, sights, sounds, tastes, odors, tactile, physical sensations, and all mental objects. This is the terrible bait of the world with which the world is infatuated. But when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha shines radiantly like the sun, having transcended Mara's realm. I just love that image of the bait of the world. You know, it's like the six different sense objects are all arising and passing, and I, I imagine, just playing on this image, you know, that each one of these sense objects has a little hook on it. And as it comes along, the mind bites. <laughs> oh, that, that sight looks appealing, or that sound, or that taste. And we keep getting ensnared by the bait of the world. For when one has transcended this, the mindful disciple of the Buddha, mindfulness is the key here. When we're mindful of what's arising, the mindful disciple shines radiantly like the sun, having transcended Mara's realm. So that's really what we're all practicing. It's very interesting just to watch our minds and how, how easy it is to get ensnared you know, a thought comes, and if we're not really mindful, it's as if we hop on these trains of association. 
You know, we hop on a train and, and just one thought leads to another, leads to another, leads to different feelings, leads to certain images, fantasies, whatever. And then one minute or five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes later, we hop off the train in a completely different mental environment. You know, and when we hopped on, we had no idea where the train is going. And we didn't even know we hopped on. This just, this shows us, and we know this from experience, this, this is what we learn when we watch our minds. This is what's happening. We begin to learn of the tremendous power of mindfulness to wake up from this. It's really important to know this about our minds because most people don't. You know, if you went up to anybody on the street and asked them, you know, does your mind wander? Oh, no, I, I know what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> because unless we've looked, unless we've really turned our attention inward, people have no idea what their minds are doing. You know, and they're just assuming that they're awake and alert. And without knowing what our mind's doing, we're not motivated to actually wake up. So seeing this shouldn't be a source of discouragement. It actually is the first fundamental and important insight. There's a wonderful little Dharma poem by Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last century kind of wrote this ode to mindfulness. He said, mindfulness is the root of dharma. Mindfulness is the body of practice. Mindfulness is the fortress of the mind. Mindfulness is the aid to the wisdom of innate wakefulness. Lack of mindfulness will allow the negative forces to overcome you. Without mindfulness, you will be swept away by laziness. Lack of mindfulness is the creator of evil deeds. Without mindfulness and presence of mind, nothing can be accomplished. Without mindfulness, you are a heartless zombie, a walking corpse. Dear Dharma friends, please be mindful. By the aspiration of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, may all Dharma friends attain stable mindfulness and ascend the throne of perfect awakening. So this is no small thing that we're engaged in, you know, to wake up from the dreamlike pattern of our lives when we're just caught up and lost, caught by the terrible bait of the world, and we're actually practicing being mindful, being alert, being awake. Now, what is it that makes mindfulness such a powerful force in this path of awakening? Unlike perception or recognition, which can be colored by greed, can be colored by hatred, can be colored by delusion, mindfulness as a quality of mind is always wholesome. The Buddha called it one of the universal, beautiful states of mind. Mindfulness is present 
in every wholesome consciousness. If mindfulness is present, the mind is wholesome. It must be wholesome. So that's an amazing gift of mindfulness to our inner ecology. When we're mindful, all of the factors that are arising in the mind, it's a wholesome mind state. But here's where the problem can arise. We often confuse perception with mindfulness. We can take perception, recognition, when we recognize something, very often we think that because we are recognizing what's present, it means that we're being mindful. But recognition and mindfulness are two very different things. I'll just give you an example. As you know, I've spoken of many times in different talks. Early on in my practice, one of the one of the kalesas, the defilements that I worked with very very strongly, uh, was fear. Huge amount of fear in the mind, and so it got to it was just primal. You know, it wasn't about anything in particular. It was just the raw emotion of fear. And so I was working with this for a very long time, months and months and months, and I was recognizing it. I was noting it, fear, 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 fear. But it still felt lodged. It felt that was really in there. And it took a very long time of practice. And then at a certain point, as I was noting it, something shifted in my mind. And that shift was expressed in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that moment was the first moment of acceptance of the fear. So all those months previously, I was recognizing it. I was noting it. I thought I was being mindful, but it wasn't mindfulness because I was always noting it recognizing it with an attitude of wanting it to go away. I didn't like it. You know, so there was this unnoticed aversion towards the fear. That's not mindfulness. So we have to be very clear. You know, we may be recognizing something, and we may or may not be mindful in that moment. We have to do an additional check. We begin to understand that mindfulness, this wholesome factor of mind, the recognition is there, the perception is there, but mindfulness is that coming face to face with what's in front of us without greed, without hatred, without delusion. So we need to check as we're being aware, as we're knowing and recognizing different experiences, are we being mindful or not? You know, what's going on in the mind? What's the attitude in the mind towards the experience? When we can drop into that place of mindfulness, which is a place of acceptance, non-resistance, non-grasping, then it's a great relaxation 
It's as if we relax into the body, just opening to what's ever there, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We feel the different sensations of heaviness or lightness or pressure or tightness, whatever it may be. But we're checking what's the attitude in the mind about this. So we see whether it's simple recognition or we're actually being mindful of it. It's very interesting to check on the mindfulness just in the ordinary activities of the day, you know, as you're moving around through the building and through the grounds. As you're moving, are you mindful that you're seeing? Or are you just caught up in what is being seen? You know, with comments and judgments or thinking of what one has to do next, whatever mental activity is going on. That's recognition, it's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is aware that we are seeing. Seeing, seeing, very different state. I had one powerful experience of the power of mindfulness to free the mind from unskillful patterns. And it had to do with mindfulness of seeing. As many of you have expressed, and I think this is a very common experience, there were times in my practice when the mind was just filled with judgments, comments about everyone I saw. I go into the dining room for a meal, I would have a comment or judgment about every single person. Walking too fast, too slow. I didn't like what they were wearing. I did like what they were wearing. They took too much food. They didn't take enough food. It was ridiculous. But this was just the mind. It was just the mind doing that. So after some time of just seeing just how totally ridiculous this was, I realized that the reason it was happening was that I was not being mindful of seeing. Because that's what prompted all the judgments. I would see someone, and the seeing would prompt all these comments. So I started going into the dining room. As soon as I would go in, seeing was the only note I would make. I just seeing, 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 seeing. I really focused the mindfulness on that sense door. It was amazing. The judgments completely disappeared because there was no room. I was mindful of the fact that I was seeing. And so there was no, there was no platform for the judgments and comments uh, to land on. So very power. Mindfulness has this tremendous power you know, of freeing us from being lost in these unwholesome patterns. It's very important with the whole range of our experiences to check the attitude about them because that will let us know whether we're being mindful or not. So, for example, with physical sensations, you know, especially with the experience of unpleasant ones, but with pleasant also on the other side, what's the attitude in the mind? Is the mind simply open and receptive and allowing and mindful of it? Or is there a background resistance? I don't like it. I wish it would go away. Maybe there's fear. 
you know, oh, this pain is here now, it's okay now, but what's it going to be like in half an hour? You know, we just start spinning out in that story. We can also notice the attitude, and not can, we, we need to notice the attitude in the mind about thoughts and emotions. And so a very useful technique, and Saito Utejaniya has spoken a lot about this, <clears throat> a very useful technique is frequently in the course of the day, both in the sitting, the walking, the moving about, to frequently check in and ask the question, okay, what's the attitude in the mind about this present moment experience? Whether it's about a sensation, whether it's about an emotion, like the fear. If I had checked the attitude in my mind 10 months earlier, I could have saved myself a lot of dukkha. But I didn't know about that. (laughs) You know, that very simple, actually, technique didn't think of doing it. What's the attitude? Oh, there's resistance. Okay, so then we see it and we can settle in. What's the attitude about having thoughts? What's the attitude about the different emotions that we have? What's interesting is that in asking this question, and what's the attitude means, what's the relationship of the mind? How is the mind relating to this experience? It's not that we're asking the question even particularly for an answer. Very often it's simply in asking the question that we have stopped identifying with whatever the attitude may have been. So I'll just give you an example of that. One time I was practicing and I was just sitting and feeling the breath and it felt very ordinary, just, just sitting, feeling the breath coming in and out. But then I thought to ask myself, okay, what's the attitude in the mind? And in the moment of asking the question, I could feel my mind relax back, let go from a wanting that I hadn't even known was there. A wanting slight, just a subtle wanting to get more concentrated, wanting calm, wanting peace, whatever. And just by asking the question, what's the attitude? The mind disidentified with that and settled into a more open space. So this is a very powerful way of both strengthening and understanding the nature and power of mindfulness. A very good feedback in practice that can remind you to check the attitude is anytime you feel a sense of struggle. Do you ever feel struggle in your practice? You know, we all do at different times. Struggle means just one thing. 
it means that something is arising in our experience that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So it's very simple and it's a very clear feedback. So rather than taking struggle as being a problem, take it as information. When you have that sense of struggle, all you have to do, taking it as feedback, very simple, all you have to do is settle back, open up, and ask yourself the question, well, what's happening now? What's happening that I'm not open to? Maybe it's some unpleasant physical sensation. Maybe it's a background mood or emotion that we weren't aware of you know, and are struggling with. Maybe it's the fact that there are a lot of thoughts and we don't like the fact that there are a lot of thoughts and so we get into a struggle with it. So this is a very simple way of disentangling ourselves from the struggle and it's all through being mindful of what's actually present. Sometimes people feel discouraged in their practice, you know, when they're going through times of difficulty. Now, even for quite experienced meditators, I would say, I'll make a rash statement. I would say this is probably true for all of us. How often do we evaluate and measure our sittings? If it's a pleasant sitting, oh, that was good. That was a good sitting. And if it was unpleasant, oh, I had a bad sitting. We measure our sittings by whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. But that is not the measure of anything valuable. The measure of whether a sitting is good or not is how mindful we've been of whether things are pleasant or unpleasant. That's the only important standard. So we have to really see that pattern of conditioning in our mind and not get seduced by it. So in all of these different situations, it's mindfulness, not just recognition, It's mindfulness that comes face to face with the object and observes it, sees it, experiences it without greed, without clinging, without aversion, without delusion, without ignorance. So there's consciousness, there's perception, which is the recognition, there's mindfulness. But mindfulness, as powerful as it is, is not enough. The next term that we need to understand is wisdom. Because it's possible to be mindful without wisdom. So wisdom is yet another quality of mind that we need to understand and cultivate. Mindfulness is the foundation for wisdom. If we're not mindful, there's no chance for wisdom to arise. But when we are mindful, present to what's arising, then we can actually learn from the experience. So wisdom combines the qualities of investigation and right understanding. 
you know, with a continuity of mindfulness through the day, both within a sitting and in the transition times, in the walking, it's the continuity of mindfulness that gives power to the practice and makes possible the growth of wisdom. When we are mindful in a somewhat continuous way, <coughs> then the question arises with whatever the experience is, <coughs> what is the nature of this experience? So just as an example of how we go from consciousness and perception to mindfulness to wisdom, we might have a superficial knowing of a certain sensation. And our first, our first understanding of it is, my back hurts. So this is common. This is, this is how people would describe their experience. So there's knowing of it, there's recognition. But mindfulness then takes us deeper. It's not, my back hurts but we begin to be mindful of the actual sensations that are present. Back is a concept. Okay, so then we are, we're being mindful of the tightness, the pressure, the pulsing, the stabbing, whatever the sensation is. Then as we're observing the sensations, wisdom then inve- investigates further. It's as if we're asking the question, what do I learn from being mindful? Right? So it's not just being mindful, it's like, what are we learning from being mindful? What understanding is growing? So just, I'll just give just a very ordinary example. You know, maybe we're feeling some unpleasant sensations. So wisdom can understand this on many different levels. If your hand is on fire, if your hand is in a fire, you don't want to just be mindful. Oh, burning, burning, burning. You want, at quite quickly, what am I learning from this? <laughs> oh, this is a danger signal. You take your hand out. So that's an application of wisdom to to what our experience is. Or wisdom might understand, oh, this, this pain, this discomfort is coming from too much efforting. Okay, we're learning something from it, so then maybe we relax a bit. Maybe we understand we're experiencing some unpleasant sensation. What am I learning from this? Oh, this is this is about the accumulated tensions that I'm carrying in my body. Maybe that's what we understand. And so then we make the space, kind of create the space, allowing all these tensions to unwind. So our actions are coming from the wisdom, from what we learn about these different experiences. It's not just being mindful. We want to be investigating We can also bring this wisdom factor to bear on the different thoughts and emotions that are arising in the mind. You know, consciousness, knowing, and perception, knowing all the different thoughts and feelings we have all day long, 
if you go up to somebody and says, what were you thinking? They'll probably be able to tell you. They'll recognize you know, what the content of their thought was. But they were not mindful that they were thinking. They were lost in it. When we're mindful that we're thinking, then wisdom can come in and investigate the very nature of thought. Now this gets very interesting. And what I would suggest that you give emphasis to in your practice is to see very clearly the difference in your experience between being lost in a thought and being aware that you're thinking. These are two very different experiences. And it's important to have a clear understanding of the difference. So during the course of a day, pay particular attention to those moments when you awaken from being lost in a thought. Okay, sometimes you'll awaken from being lost after the thought's already over. You know, the thought has come and gone, and then you re- oh, I was thinking. Okay, well, you've become aware at that moment. Sometimes you awaken from being lost in the middle. Sometimes when the mind is clear, we can be aware of the thought right at the beginning, just as it arises. The important point here is that at whatever point you awaken from being lost, don't overlook that moment. That moment of transition, lost, lost, lost in a thought, and then we're awake, we're aware. The tendency is to rush back to some other object, to rush back to the breath, the walking. Don't rush back. Take some time to really see and be mindful of the aware mind. Because it's very clear in that moment the difference between ignorance and awareness. Because we've just gone from being lost to being awake. Does this seem clear? Highlight that moment because it will give you insight into the nature of awareness. You will have a very direct experience. This is what the wakeful mind is like. Now there's some good news here. And the good news is that for as many times as we get lost in the course of a day, that many times do we awaken. Nobody stays lost. Nobody here, anyway stays lost all day. You know, we're carried away, we're lost in the thought, and then at a certain point, we awaken. As many times as you get lost, that many times do you awaken. So if you pay attention to the awakening moment, there's quite an endless source of joy and delight in your practice because you're connecting with all those moments of wakefulness and understanding it.
the more attention you bring to thought and associated emotions and can be mindful of it, wisdom can then ask a further question. It's not only noticing being lost and then awakening, but then you can inquire, you can investigate what is the nature of thought. So this is not asking what is the thought saying. The content is not important. Here we're asking this phenomenon of thought as it's arising in the mind, what is it? Very few people ask that question. You know, people are interested in what the thoughts are saying and not particularly interested in the nature of thought. But this is tremendously freeing because unnoticed, you know, the thoughts in our minds, as you know, have tremendous power. They run our lives. They're like little dictators in the mind. We are slaves of our thoughts. Go here, go there, do this, do that. You know, whatever, our whole lives is just, we're playing out the commands of thoughts in the mind. So what's so striking in our practice is we can see that when unnoticed, thoughts have all this power, and yet when we are looking directly at the nature of thought as it's present, we can see so clearly its empty, ephemeral nature. Now, when we are aware of a thought in the mind, it's little more than nothing. It's just this, it's just this, <laughs> this little energy blip in the mind. It has no power at all. The only power thoughts have is the power that we give them. But when we're not mindful, when we're not aware, when we're not investigating with wisdom the nature of thought, this is how our lives play out. We're just, we're just running out the patterns of these conditioned thoughts in the mind. Mindfulness sees what's arising in the moment. No wholesome mind, say, without clinging, without condemning, without delusion, without identifying with it. And wisdom sees into the nature of what's arising. Wisdom understands that all of the experiences of our lives, sights and sounds and smells and sensations and thoughts and emotions and knowing itself, consciousness itself, doesn't belong to anyone. It's not as if there's someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. Rather, all of these phenomena are just conditioned experiences expressing their own nature. So the thought is the thinker. There's not someone who's having the thought. The thought is thinking itself. Anger angers, joy joys, love loves. It's like every aspect of our experience is simply expressing its own nature. And nature is one of the meanings of the word dharma. 
So our practice is to understand and to live in harmony with the nature of things. And we do this not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings. So I'd just like to close with kind of a wonderful reminder. This is from Ajahn Man, who was the grandfather, really, of the Thai forest tradition, and was, there's a book, the, the biography of Ajahn Man, it's, it's an unbelievable book, because he was, he was this amazing yogi, and had all kinds of wild experiences, and they're all chronicled in this book. Anyway, a great, you know, great enlightened master. So he said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's own mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. So let's just sit for a couple of moments. <clears throat> 